0: I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and fan of C.S. Lewis. I'm really pleased to welcome Chris Armstrong to the podcast today. A fellow Duke Blue Devil, though before my time. Dr. Chris R. Armstrong is an educator, academic entrepreneur, author, editor, and church historian. He currently serves as program fellow in faith, work, and economics for the Kern Family Foundation. He taught from 2004 to 2013 at Bethel Seminary. He also has served as faculty member and founding director of the Opus Faith and Vocation Initiative at Wheaton College. His medieval wisdom for modern Christians, Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis from Brazos in 2016, retrieves the Christian humanism of the Middle Ages. Chris serves as senior editor of Christian History Magazine and blogs at gratefultothedead.com. He enjoys playing tabletop games with friends, listening to jazz and improving his jazz piano skills. I'm so glad
1: you're here, Dr. Armstrong. So I ask everyone who comes on the show two questions. The first is what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 mm-hmm. years ago?
2: Um, you're, gonna, you're asking a historian and someone who reads <laughs> a lot. So that was a tough question for yes. me. Uh, I, I I I could have chosen so many. Uh, One of them, I suppose, in the nonfiction areas uh, would be Gregory the Great's book, The Pastoral Rule, which was given just sheer, sheer influence. It was given to every bishop upon their consecration in the Western Church for a thousand years. That's uh, that's more longevity than almost any author could hope for. But it was intensely practical and wonderful for people who were. entering or thinking of entering uh, the ministry in the church. And, uh, but I, I didn't choose that. That would have been the right answer if I was still a, a seminary professor, but I'm not, <laughs> um, I, I'll say Boethius consolation of philosophy. Okay. I,
1: well, I thought um, you were going to go for something uh, like, um, more kind of modern but you went for the no, the, the heavy hitters of the early medieval era
2: <laughs> you you didn't put any any rearward no, time limit on that so no
1: boethius um, in the house all right why boethius uh,
2: it, it boethius brings elements of augustinian theology to the fore in a strictly philosophical argument in a really cool way, to the degree where people, as you probably know, have asked, was he, is there any evidence from this book that he was actually a Christian? I happen to think there's plenty. People misunderstand the degree to which the classical heritage was absorbed by medieval uh, writers. Um, And so i Perfectly happy to to say that that uh, it's clear to me he was he was a Christian, but uh, uh, it's an allegory. Um, It's very compelling. It's about happiness, which is also compelling to me. I have thought and studied a lot about eudaimonia or happiness or flourishing and um, and it influenced everybody. And interestingly, when C.S. Lewis was asked to name the top 10 by actually the Christian century in America toward the end of his life, to name the 10 books that had had the most influence on his sense of vocation and philosophy of life, he only, only one of the 10 that he named was medieval, which is interesting for a professor of medieval literature. And it was, it was Boethius, very, very early medieval. Um, And I... I've thought and studied and written a little bit about why that might've been the case. I think Lewis, the short answer is, I think Lewis thought of himself as a, as another Boethius in some ways.
1: (laughs) I could see that. I could see that, you know, it's funny that you mention the kind of controversy around Boethius because when I was in undergrad in my first class on medieval literature, uh, we read the consolation mm-hmm. and my professor taught that it was a pagan text, which is super in retrospect. I'm like, that's, um, wow. Okay. You taught that straightforwardly in a way that is, I don't think very authentic to the spirit of the text, but okay. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It ignores I was, the like, controversy too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Um, so yeah. an interesting, yeah. really worthwhile book. Um, and yeah, I totally could see that C.S. Lewis would think of himself as another Boethius. That makes so much sense.
2: I, I gave a paper at the Institute for, uh, at the, um, Oh, what is it called? I should know. I've gone every year for years at Kalamazoo at the the, uh, the big
1: yeah. uh,
2: medieval meeting there. And I start by giving a long description of someone who I expected the audience to think of as C.S. Lewis. And it turned out I was talking about Boethius. That was my little trick. I at <laughs> nice. So I got some good laughs from medievalist English professors in the room.
1: Excellent. So, so my second get to know you question yeah. is which literary character do you most identify with and why?
2: You know, I'd love to be able to say it's like Sam Gamgee or something, but it's not, (laughs) Um, I I remember uh, my office when I was um, at Bethel and I think I might've had it in my study Carol at Duke, an illustration by Gustave Doré from Cervantes' uh, Don Quixote. And uh, it's got a little quote at the bottom of it. I went to try to look it up and I don't know if this is the right one, but there's Don Quixote. And he, if you know Doré illustrations, it's absolutely lavish. It's this incredible woodcut with all yes. this stuff going on. There's, yes. He's sitting in his armchair. He's holding a sword up and there's all these dragons and giants and stuff around him and a big piles of books on the floor. And this might have been the quote. His imagination was full of all that he read in his books, to wit, enchantments, battles, single combats, challenges, wounds, courtships, amours, tempests, and impossible absurdities, (laughs) and so on. And I I really felt during my doctoral studies and beyond that my imagination was full of all that I read in my books. Um, If you know the story, you know that he was a little detached from reality.
1: (laughs) Tilting at windmills.
2: Which which probably describes a lot of academics. Um, Very true. Somebody said academics, when they don't like what's going on in the real world, just build another one in their heads. Um, but anyway, so I probably relate in ways both positive and negative to Don Quixote. But I was reminded, I'm going to come back to Lewis again, that in the 50s, when he got his, his chair at, at uh, Cambridge, he gave that wonderful talk, uh, De Descriptione Temporum Um uh, a description of the, the times And he said uh, I'm a dinosaur I'm born as if yes. one out of time You know I'm. you don't have that many medieval people Still walking around you ought to study me As a as an object of study and so forth And I'm not quite that Steeped in in the medieval But anyway
1: But you feel a little, like, little like Don, Don Quixote. Quixote A little dinosaur A little, little out of
2: time little <laughs> dinosaur yep
1: Yes so. and that is Don Quixote always wishing He were born about 300 years prior. <laughs> um, and
2: as you know, a lot of people who became enamored of the middle ages in the 19th century were very much romantics who wished that they had oh, been yes. born in the medieval period. As oh well. yes. And um, that's
1: where you get all those wonderfully weird, um, like Victorian follies and stuff. When yes, you, when you yes. visit England and they have all those faux medieval like towers and- like, They have gothic stuff. Yeah. yeah, same, same vibes. Uh-huh. But we
2: went. To, we went to Duke, so we know all about the gothic do. architecture. Oh, it wasn't that young. crazy, but no, yeah.
1: I do honestly. I don't. I I love a good neo gothic. I do. Yeah, I think too. it's from being being from Arizona, where there is nothing gothic there, nothing no. remotely even neo gothic there, and so no. when I walked on Duke's campus for the first time, I was like, oh, this is my place. Yeah. <laughs> so. Me too. Great place. Great place. All right. Um, okay. So um, I, I have a very silly question for you from your bio. Go ahead. You were saying that you enjoy playing tabletop games. Is I a do. Tabletop game the same as a board game.
2: Uh, it could be a board game, a card game. Usually, it's not a video game. So not you're you're game. actually sitting with real human beings around right. the table, right? And In the using position. physical stuff. Yes, yes. It's very incarnational. Like,
1: like like that. That's
2: that and about uh, at least five figures worth of more of those games. <laughs> okay. Yes.
1: Okay. I was. Yeah. Just, um. Uh, that was a curiosity of mine. That was unrelated to the. Yeah. company.
2: There you go. That's um, the answer.
1: Yeah. All right. I. Uh, really enjoyed your book, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, which is a really lovely blend of introduction to the intellectual and spiritual world of the Middle Ages, as well as a deep dive into some of C.S. Lewis's engagement and inspiration with medieval writing. And um, could you describe the book briefly for listeners who haven't had the privilege of reading it yet?
2: Sure. I, I mean, one way I would describe it is to say when... My editor at Baker, Bob Hosick, called me up and asked me whether I would consider writing something for him, like what I would want to write. He had read an article I did, I think in 2008, quite a while ago for Christianity Today, about um, a return to to the sources among evangelicals a kind mm-hmm. the kind of resource mar retrieval movement among yes. evangelicals there had just been a meeting of the uh, annual theology conference at Wheaton and Bob Weber, who was uh, a retrieval guy par excellence, mostly early church, had um, uh, sort of set the theme for that year, which was this kind of return to sources, this retrieval. Uh, and I noted, as I have uh, had often noted, that this retrieval was almost exclusively of Christian teachings from the first uh, six centuries, yes. right? I'm After sure. that, God apparently disappeared from the face of the earth, and, or, right. or didn't, didn't. nothing important happened in the church. <laughs> <laughs> or if it did it was all bad and then terrible totally came along. yes right so so uh, when he asked me whether I would consider writing a book for Baker I said I would and um, I would probably want to fill in this gap um, he had already worked with the, the wonderful patristic scholar Dh uh, Dan Williams at Baylor on a couple of books and actually had uh, was the editor of a retrieval or resource Month series on a kind of evangelical. Um, retrieval of tradition. Mm -hmm. And so when I pitched him the idea on doing medieval retrieval, so to speak, um, he was, he was interested in that, despite the fact that I am not a medievalist, can't read Latin, et cetera, et cetera. He said, well, that's all right. You know, the American church and that's your audience. And, you know, you kind of know why maybe the American church needs um, to read this stuff.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so it was in part an exploration for me, Uh, of sort of a second prong of of scholarship after my uh, Americanist training, Mm -hmm. Uh, in part um, uh, an intuition that uh, we were missing some stuff in American evangelical Protestantism. And so the chapters are, they deal with broad themes of tradition, um, passion for theological knowledge, um, ethics, And especially the virtue ethical tradition, um, the hospital and compassion as a value, um, the natural world, the differences in how medievals and moderns treat the natural world, um, uh, passion or or, um, affections, as Jonathan Edwards called them, the religion of the heart, and the incarnation and creation and monasticism. And all of those sort of interweave in the book. So. And all of them, Lewis had something to say about oh, and yeah. write about. And so, um, the, the the long so, sort of sixteenth century ish subtitle is "Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age" with C.S. Lewis. So, yeah. And I'm, I had to fight to get Lewis's name on the cover, but really? I finally—I con- fi- me well—I finally convinced him, Look, I mean, just just put put the book in a scale and put the amount of Lewis in the book on one side, and, you know. <laughs> So it doesn't it doesn't make sense not to to mention him. Yeah, since he's inter- there's a lot of Lewis in
1: there, and there And I I feel like as um as you mentioned, there's a lot of suspicion in Protestantism, particularly yeah. in Evangelical Protestantism, around the medieval era. And so mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis is sort of like a trusted guide into that in, in ways that, well, I've discovered as a, as a Lewis myself. If I, if I um, help people enter the conversation via mm-hmm. Lewis, chances are they're going to be much more willing to hear about some of the strange, interesting, challenging ideas yeah. that the Middle Ages has to offer, right?
2: I think that's true. And it might have even been a gimmick. Uh, just to kind of get people, put Lewis on the cover and get people engaged. But it ended up being, of course, much more than that, um, as I found how deeply his own uh, faith, beliefs, and even way of life and actions were shaped by what he learned about, not just medieval, but early faith. And one of my early critics who was a patristic scholar said, well, most of this stuff's already there in Athanasius and other early fathers. I'm saying yes and no, um, you know, there are definitely some unique medieval themes that uh, that Lewis absorbs. The focus on the Gospels, on uh, the story of Christ's life, uh, and of course, very importantly, the Incarnation. Uh, the Incarnational focus was there in the early, in the Church Fathers, um, The the detailed and imaginative focus on the story of the life of Christ uh, and how he shared our humanity, uh, less so. Um, You know, you have. You have the theory of the atonement that is the the Christus Victor theory, the the sort of strongman theory. You have a focus on the father in some senses more even than the son or on the son as sort of the the warrior king who comes and breaks the power of Satan over us. And so much more was explored from Anselm and Abelard to um, to the literature of the time.
1: Absolutely. If you, you know. Something I really like to think about and and show folks who are interested in these kinds of questions are just take a look at the art, the changing Mm -hmm. art over a Mm -hmm. thousand years from, you know, say 700, 800, where you have Mm -hmm. very kingly, very majestic, um, Mm -hmm. either God, the fathers or Jesus. And even when he's on the cross, he's not visibly in pain. He's very very um, divine feeling still. Mm-hmm. And as the middle yeah. ages goes on with the influence of Anselm in particular, mm-hmm. but a lot of other mm-hmm. thinkers too, you start to get a very human Jesus who's suffering alongside yeah. and with yeah. and for all the suffering yeah. here on earth. Um, and the, yeah. the profound impact of that really cannot be exaggerated mm-hmm. as, um, as something at work in, in the medieval yeah. world. So I, I yeah. really yeah. believe that there's just so much riches there, but what drew you to medieval literature in the first place? Cause it's not exactly something that you, most people at least yeah. pick up just yeah. on their own.
2: It's interesting, you know, going to the Kalamazoo meeting at the international Congress, uh, the medieval Congress every year for about 10 years, as I was writing the book and after I'd written the book, um, it's remarkable how many people there uh became medievalists through J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah,
1: oh my gosh, I know it's really funny, huh? Right? I've I mean, been to that as well. Yeah.
2: There's track I meet mean, me, myself track.
1: being one of them, basically. Right. It, it, there's, yeah. <laughs>
2: panel after panel and track after track on, on Tolkien. And so w- when I started going, uh, Professor Joe Rickey, who was then at Taylor and is, is now doing other things down in Texas, was had just co-started with a member of the Purdue uh, C.S. Lewis Society, uh, a Lewis track for the first time. I mean, they've been Tolkien, Tolkien, Tolkien all the way. And finally there was this Lewis track. And it just made all kinds of sense. I mean, you know, Norman Cantor's book about medievalists says identifies Lewis and Tolkien as part of this group. He calls the Oxford fantasists. Um, I really did come to medieval uh, literature in part through kind of the Oxford fantasists and part through authors like Lloyd Alexander, who I read when I was a kid, you know, the the black, black cauldron and all of this, this is sort of illumination of in that case, Celtic, mythology but also a kind of medieval-esque world so
1: definitely I think fantasy is so fun that way fantasy yeah. just offers yeah. avenues of creativity that I think people go "Oh, where's that coming from and it's just that little bit of medieval inspiration that ends up mm-hmm. uh, leading you down interesting strange paths which is really fun um what do you so mean? my dad,
2: my dad read those book, many of those books, the Narnia series, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and many other. Lord Alexander at the table. When we were kids, I mentioned that at the beginning of the book, and I think that's really what kind of captured my imagination. It was certainly not Lewis's stuff on on apologetics or any of his. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't have identified the ways in which he was what I came to call an intuitive medievalist. I just yes. knew that it kind of kind of showed up in his work. So. Absolutely. and Tolkien's, obviously. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um
1: what uh what do you think are some of uh, as you've read actual medieval texts, what do you think are some of the most valuable things that you've learned sitting at the feet of medieval teachers or how has reading yeah. them changed you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I would say, and I, I, I make this characterization in the book, in many ways, we have abstracted faith from life in general. And I would say, in particular, we've abstracted faith from all that it means to be an embodied human being. And uh, it's you can't escape in in medieval literature Um you know, whatever form it takes, in you know, in Chaucer you have it in the form of sort of satire. Sometimes it's really poking at the church, uh, but uh, you know, in, in other in um, in Abelard, it's a sort of emotional wrestling with the atonement. In in Anselm, um, it's it's parallels with the kind of political model of what what's going on in the atonement. Um, this sense of and, and I'll give you another one: Marjorie Kemp. Um, I love marjorie right? <laughs> right I mean you know it's it's an absolutely embodied uh very recognizably human way of approaching faith or yes. let's let's say in the um in the york cycle right I, I in, love in,
1: the in, york in, cycle yes
2: yeah so you have it's so uh, you human. have like it is human it's body it's humorous yes. it's it's sort of it, it you know kind of slaps us in the face for those used to being in respectable little middle
1: class
2: (laughs) white white churches doesn't look anything like that. um, Anyway, so, you know, go go on and on. Actually, when somebody asked Lewis where he got kind of that humorous touch in his in his writings, one of the things he talked about was the mystery plays. He says, look, this this is a kind of faith that is very open about what it means to be a human being, the good, the bad and the ugly and and plays it for humor often.
1: Yes. And, and for listeners who haven't heard of the York cycle, so something um, that something really interesting that um, in medieval England was happening and in medieval Europe as well as a whole was that there were these plays that were based off of the gospels and the the life of Jesus. And in fact, some of them went all the way from creation to um, judgment day. So there were these plays that would be played on particular feast days. And what made them um, extra interesting was that they were not Done by professional actors, mm-hmm. they were done by uh, members of guilds and townspeople, mm-hmm. and so um, it was a very communal product. And it was all outside on these giant wagons, basically. Um, and so you would have your your neighbor playing Jesus um, at the Passion, or playing Judas at the Last Supper, <laughs> or playing Moses with the Ten Commandments. So it was this very very embodied representation of the life of Christ. And think in an age where um, literacy was less than it is today, although yeah. <clears throat> although the Middle Ages also gets an unduly bad rap about literacy that's not quite so bad as we may yeah. imagine it initially, but certainly way less literacy than today, this would have been a momentous occasion for seeing the gospels and the whole story of salvation brought to life. So that's the York cycle, is one of those. Mm-hmm. And um, and so think of in these moments, what Dr. Armstrong is is referencing with the humor is that you would have these scenes where um, there would be all these jokes going on in this very, very serious story. Um, And so it was never uh, being Christian, following Jesus uh, was not sort of an abstract spirituality when they were participating in a tradition like this. So very different and very foreign for yeah. some of us than, than what we might be used to.
2: And, and in, in a real sense, I think deeper um, because yes, yes, I agree. Um, it, it's problematic when you abstract the spiritual from everything else that it is to be human. Um, you, you suddenly have a faith that really doesn't have much to say with much of where you live and what you do with your life and your family and your sexuality and your eating and drinking and about everything else. Um, so we, we have rules about that stuff, but it's not worked into our culture as Christians the way that it was in the in the uh, Middle Ages. So absolutely.
1: Um, so you kind of anticipated, but maybe you have a, a particular more like, more discreet answer to this. But who is your favorite medieval writer then?
2: You know, I I just mentioned Marjorie Camp. I've derived so much um, interest and pleasure from reading the book of of Marjorie. She was not um, someone who could write herself. She was obviously very bright and uh, very able to articulate her story, which she does. Uh, So it was an anonymous priest who actually wrote the book, the book of Marjorie Camp. She was a late medieval. town's woman of some stature. I think her husband had been the equivalent of the mayor of the town and she had had 14 children and decided that uh, she was going to go deeper in her religious life and did so in ways that were extremely unsettling for many of the uh, religious functionaries around her priests and monks and other folks, although she did make friends among some of those. She would weep and wail and and uh, just kind of carry on in the midst of religious services and so forth. But uh, there was much more than that going on. But it is, again, this and and was completely frank about the kinds of temptations she was experiencing yes. in her life and all of this kind of stuff. It's so like, wow, I wouldn't even admit this to my closest <laughs> friend. And she's like writing it, having this written in this book that. And and the other cool thing about it is nobody even knew this book existed until what the early 1900s. They found it buried in some library uh, of some old estate in England.
1: Yeah, and get this, it was actually like some aristocrats playing ping pong, and they were looking for an extra ping pong ball when they found the book of Marjorie Kemp, which is insane. <laughs> um, but I that will is never, insane. I will so. never get over that. I mean, that's wild. Uh, If you if you
2: want, if you want a kind of direct, vivid illustration of that kind of coupling of embodiment and spirituality, there are very few better places to find that than in that book. And it'll put you off. She seems like a crazy person to many of my students. But I'm like, well, aren't we all we're on the human spectrum, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think. With Marjorie too, it's that it's what you mentioned. It's that level of honesty that you're like. Yeah, she's just yeah. writing what so many people would dare not say. Yeah, ever. that's true. Um, but we think, and and especially with some of our modern ideas, um, she's she's a, a shock to read, but a really good. One. <laughs> yeah, I
2: think so. Refreshing.
1: So refreshing. All right. So you serve as. Senior editor at Christian History. And um, this is a question that I actually just asked historian Beth Allison Barr a few weeks ago. And it's one that I'm really interested in trying to pull out a little bit, think through, which is how do you think the past should shape us as Christians? Because it's it's really implicated yeah. in a ton of conversations right now. And, mm-hmm. and how do you think but so many of these conversations are couched in ways that um, aren't asking like what bearing should the past or history take in our moral and spiritual lives?
2: Yeah, I have like three or four approaches to this question sort of crowding in my mind at once. I will say um, one thing that Looking at uh, history can do for us, particularly the history of the church, and that's my specialized area, is can help us to see the church once reformed, always reforming. I mean, the church is never static. Um, this is the sort of temporal equivalent of an argument that uh, the late Yale missiologist Laman Sana, Sana made that Christianity is par excellence, the religion of translation, not, not mm. just ling- linguistic, but culturally. Yeah. It shows up in so many times and places in so many cultural contexts. And Sana says, every place it shows up in the world, Um, it does two things. It both revises the culture at places where the culture needs to be revised, and it revives the culture in places where common grace has been in effect and creative humans with brains given to them by God have done incredible things, and it's sort of captured that. And, you know, he could have had thirdly, and it gets a bunch of stuff wrong. Um, And we're certainly seeing that in spades now, and we can see that throughout history. Yes. But I think the wrong mode to read uh, the history of, of um, Christianity and culture and would be one that says, uh, I'm only going to go find the negative stories that back up my prejudices, or I'm only going to go find the positive stories that sort of um, whitewash um, things that were going on. It has to be read in a complex and human way.
1: Yeah. How do you think um, that history, so something that um, another like relatedly, what I'm interested in this question is history's relationship to formation. Cause I think mm-hmm. in my, in my own life um, before a certain point, I was always really interested in history, but I grew up in, um, in evangelicalism in, mm-hmm. in, in, especially in a vein that wasn't very interested in, in right. the church as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was, cool with Billy Graham onward it was cool with mm. the apostles right. <laughs> and there was right. a whole lot in between just like we were talking yeah. about earlier yeah, um, absolutely and so um you know a lot of uh I have listeners from very diverse walks of Christianity um mm. I have a lot of Catholic listeners who are much who are who are very much more comfortable with tradition as a formative influence and Given your particular intellectual and spiritual tradition, how do you think that history can form um, tr- traditions that aren't that interested in tradition? <laughs>
2: Well, um, I mean, you, you you grab hold of things you can grab hold of. Uh, our tradition is certainly interested in stories, maybe yes. more modern testimonies of people who have had life changing experiences and so on. That's a place to start. Um, so much of history really is um, the best of it is is narrative informed. Doesn't mean there's yes. no intellectual content. There's yes. no analysis, but there's certainly narrative there. Um Certain Victorian writers said there is no history, uh, properly speaking, there's only biography. And to some extent, that's true. But of course, group mass biography over time, uh, well, yeah, let's just call that history. <laughs> right. um,
1: let's not get too picky here.
2: Let's not get too picky here. Um, so, you know, I think the why we need it is because. Um, to not pay attention to history is to break with the actual form in which the gospel comes to us in the first mm-hmm. place. I love it. It is a historical religion. Yes. Synecdoche. It's a historical religion. It is the story of God showing up on the earth, and before that, God creating and God being along with a you know His chosen people, and and all that happened. Its narrative. Largely, not exclusively, but, you know, most characteristically narrative. Um, and that captures and captivates something deep within us because we experience ourselves narratively. Yes. We, our lives, our families, our institutions, we, we experience them as moving through time, not as something that's a drop down from heaven, you know, like that. Yes. So, um, so it's appropriate both to the nature of the gospel and to the nature of us.
1: I really like that, and I I appreciate, too, the the use of thinking narratively, um, because I think sometimes we don't give enough credit to stories, and thinking of history as stories actually helps to break a lot of those... boxes that people Mm. want to put history in where they really Mm. want it to line up uh morally or lessen you know pedagogically with particular things that they've decided are acceptable right and that's true for across the spectrum it doesn't matter where you land on the on the political spectrum everybody uh is wanting history And, and some people are more honest about that than others um but I think I, I mean, thinking about if, it as narrative good.
2: Yeah. If I might interject, uh, it just occurs to me that the phrase that will drive historians straight up the wall every time is when somebody writing in a public venue, usually not a historian, will say, history teaches, <laughs> dot, dot, dot.
1: It's the old uh, undergraduate essay, since the beginning of time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's right.
1: That's
2: right. And more likely today, you're likely to read science teaches, which right. also... Also drive scientists crazy who are aware of the yes. complexity of their well, discipline? Like, again, yeah. to yeah. separate
1: science from narrative also yeah. should not be done. Science very also actually takes place in narratives yeah. very often. It does. Um, it does. Because, because of exactly what you're saying, our human narrative experience of living in time um, and asking questions in time yeah. at particular times and places. Um all right, so your book was published in 2016 Mm -hmm. and a lot has happened since you've written it. What do you Mm -hmm. think is the lesson that we as a society right now, a very, very diverse, widely differing, Mm. um, conflict ridden in a lot of ways. Also, Mm. you know, seeking truth in a lot of ways too. It's complicated, but what do you think we as a society most need to hear from medieval people right now in this year?
2: Yeah. Um I think uh, your mention of conflict probably gets to the heart of it at least for those of us well, I mean we're talking about global potential global conflict right now, which is yes. I remember in you know growing up in the Cold War, going to sleep and dreaming that uh, the apocalypse had happened. And yes. we were we were all frying and radioactive. <laughs> Glory. Um, and we we may be headed there again. But in America, obviously, we think about the kinds of partisan conflict that are in yeah. front of us, uh, that are, are, are is around us and is on social media and so on. The volume is turned up on every conversation and we're hitting each other over the head with all kinds of things. So what can we learn from a medieval perspective on this? I'm going to take this from the I'm going to say something that may seem unnecessarily complicated, but I think this comes around to an answer to your question. (laughs) And that is um, I've been probably uh, the center of my scholarly interest and my writing interest right now is something that many conservative Christians today don't think exists or ever existed, which is Christian humanism. Yes, And Christian humanism not only has existed, it was characteristically early and medieval Christian. It was an integration uh, and and weaving together in a faithful way of uh, Christian understandings and especially classical uh, understandings, classical uh, philosophical understandings of life, the universe and everything, as Douglas Adams said. And so... You know what is it? It what is it grounded in? It is an understanding of human beings that is grounded in the, the Imago Dei and the incarnation, and says that in Christ we have the inauguration of the new man, the new human, and uh, uh, an understanding. Of, um, what he said? What are you going to show us, the Father? Um, Hey, guys, I'm already showing you the father. All right. Not only am I showing you the father, but, you know, the phrase son of man and other similar phrases are are used for him. He's showing us what it is to be a human being. Well, what does that mean? That seems a little abstract still. Well, it also means that we see other human beings as part of that new reality. And we see the gospel as a public truth, as Leslie Newbigin said, uh, a truth for the whole world, the truth about the whole world, not just a truth Um you know, Charles Taylor's, Taylor's book, The Secular Age, dealt with this extensively. We're in this sort of landscape of metaphysical and philosophical options uh, of which you know, various forms of Christianity are simply other options lined up next to each other. Um, Uh, unfortunately many Christians have behaved as if this is the case and as if their Christianity is really only for them and for the church. Um, whereas what I believe early and, and medieval faith, uh, as it was imperfectly, very imperfectly worked out can (laughs) can teach us among other things is, um, they were very comfortable with making statements about, Humanity in general, about mm-hmm. what it is to be a human being, and to seeing everybody who came along, even potentially, you know, the Saracen as somebody who, you know, Francis of Assisi would go and talk to a leader, uh, you know, a Muslim leader and say, you know, I, I've got to tell you this story about life, the universe, and everything. And, and uh, I've got, can that sound imperialist? Sure, it can, but it's also inclusive. Mm -hmm. It says we're not just telling ourselves a story and walling ourselves off within this church. We are wrestling with what Yen Zimmerman at Regent College calls a uh, he calls Christian humanism a philosophy of culture. Mm. And evangelical Protestantism does not have has not had in and of itself as a broad movement. Uh, a philosophy of culture or a theology no. of culture. It's uh, parts of it fundamentally
1: parts. of it have, parts, some, of it
2: have. Yeah. some reformed parts. Neo neo reformed neo Calvinist in particular have uh, some Anglican evangelical parts have. Yep. They've borrowed that from other parts of the Christian tradition. Right. It hasn't. It hasn't been homegrown, um, and so. I think that's what we need most mm-hmm. from uh, from the early and uh, medieval church as it was worked out, in um, thinkers from Boethius to Aquinas and beyond is that honest wrestling with what it means with the big questions. What um, Hado called philosophy as a way of life, not philosophy as a as an obscure conversation, but philosophy as a way of us telling what the heck it means. You know, like when I was in high school, I used to sit with friends up on top of a a flat roof building downtown with a case of beer going, why are we here? What's what's out there? Well, unfortunately, we've completely lost track of the fact that we have a long tradition, uh, many traditions within Christianity that have wrestled with those questions and reconnecting with things like, um, you know, medieval writings and medieval understandings can help us get back in touch again, more fully with what it means to be a human being through a kind of Christian humanism, which by the way, there was a patristic version. There was a scholastic version. There was a Renaissance version. There was a reformation version. Uh, Nick Waltersdorf says John Calvin was a triple humanist um, and, and on and on. And C.S. Lewis was a Christian humanist. If you read Alan Jacobs's book, the year of our Lord, 1943. So was um, T.S. Eliot. So were were Mordecai uh, Adler, uh, uh, I'm saying his name wrong, Mortimer Adler, and um, so many others were at least influenced by Christian humanism after the Second World War, which says, what on earth have we just done? And and, and how do we get to a a foundation for living now that the cataclysm has happened and these secular uh, totalitarianisms have proved to be completely void of humanity?
1: Yeah, I actually think that's a a really profound place of of hope in a lot of ways is that looking at what happened after the second world war um how people responded to complete human depravity and like the, the such a real confrontation with what it with evil and how it dwelled in humanity in normal ordinary people right and i i that's what i'm hoping for as well as we come out or, or, you know, whatever's happening with the pandemic um, as we face mm-hmm. um, the uh, America's racial um, injustices and their ongoing, mm-hmm. perpo- you know, just mm-hmm. our eternal covering up to ourselves of all these things. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope that as we're kind of gazing into that abyss, that we can move some of the directions that people like T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, Those folks were Mm. doing, um, in their time, and Tolkien and Tolkien, of course, can't miss
2: Tolkien. I think speaking in a wartime voice, and people have written books about it. Um, you know, he's, he's he's in that same moment, and he's still he's been formed as a Catholic Christian, and he's trying to trying to figure out in the midst of that, how to how to grapple with those questions of yes. the problem of evil and so much more.
1: No, I mean, Lord yeah. of the Rings and his, all of his, all of his amazing writings are are so formed by his experience in the trenches at the, the yeah. lowest point of so yeah. many people's lives. So yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. That's a very thoughtful answer. Um, sure. To uh, bring it back to Lewis. As somebody now who's worked a lot on Lewis, I'd just love to know, what's your favorite C.S. Lewis book?
2: Oh, I'd have to, probably I'd have to say *Perelandra*. although recently it's sort of shading over to, uh, I've just finally read Till We Have Faces. I think it's marvelous. Um, that Hideous Strength is a weird and wonderful book where he's trying to write like Charles Williams and he's bringing <laughs> Merlin back to life and all of this crazy stuff. Um, uh uh, either I could have said either of those and I might still, but uh, the Hobbit is just the story that captivated me the most when I was, I'm sorry. The Hobbit is obviously. Like, uh, well, you're
1: welcome I, to talk I, about I, your favorite Tolkien, but I'm,
2: I, I'm, conf- I'm conflating here. No, I mean, the Nardia series was probably would have been my favorite as a kid. I was not captivated at all by his apologetic writings when I became, um, uh, when I was in my twenties, wrestling with faith before I became a Christian, mm-hmm. um, uh, in fact, people were using that stuff as a as a stick to beat me on the head with to try to make it <laughs> Christian. I like, yeah, I ain't reading that. So,
1: Yeah, I I think that... Um, I, I, I do like Paralander the best of the space trilogy. Yeah. I think that hideous strength is just a little too angry for me at times, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I like it, but... Paralandra mm-hmm. is, um, remarkable. I don't know.
2: I really yeah, it really is. Yeah.
1: But I think Voyage of the Don Treader would have to actually be my favorite fiction overall of his. Um,
2: it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful story. And it's funny because it's, I, I well, it, it, I mean, there, there's so many things to say about it, right? There's similarities to the Odyssey. There's, there's this sort of Christian story of, um, heading to the East uh, and and there's the wonderful character of Reba chief I mean, there's just, there's so much cool stuff going on. There, so.
1: I have a vi- I mean, you were just talking about your vivid memories of your father reading to you. And one of my vivid memories of my father reading to me is um, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, specifically the chapter of Eustace becoming the dragon. Mm-hmm. And oh, I yeah. remember him, he opened the book and he said, oh, this is one of my favorite things to read. And I remember it so vividly. Um, Mm, And I still think, mm. yes, the Eustace and the Dragonskin parable is one of the most lovely, well-done, beautiful articulations of of just being human that I think I've read.
2: And there's Plato in there. And there's... an older Christian understanding, classical Christian understanding of the the soul somehow forming the body. And you see it yes. in George MacDonald, yes. you know, as courteous, shaking people's hands and feeling the the hoof or the par or whatever it is of, of the creature that they're really becoming because of <laughs> the ways they live their moral life. And, and there you have Lewis doing it so, so uh, memorably and so well.
1: Yes. Um, okay, then what is your least favorite to shake it up?
2: I mean, I, I may I may be coming around to it, but mere Christianity for a long time was my least favorite.
1: Because <laughs> of the stick, because of the cudgel. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and also because I, I sense that he was bullying at points in the book.
1: Mm, he I think that's my least favorite thing about um sometimes Lewis's writing yeah. is that yeah. um you know he has a double-edged sword of being such an his intellect is astounding the dark side of that intellect is that he is just often absolutely convinced that, yeah. you know, <laughs> what he's saying is 100% right. And you're kind of stupid. If you really uh, deviate from that. So, have you
2: have you read accounts distinguishing Oxford students' experiences of having been his student, as opposed <laughs> oh, to being gosh. Tolkien's student?
1: You know, our, t- t- tell us about them.
2: <laughs> well, t- I mean, what, what I read, and I wasn't there, obviously, was that Tolkien, you could barely understand him when he was lecturing, unless he was <laughs> declaiming de, de Beowulf, and then it was like ringing out clear and true. And, and Lewis, you could always understand booming voice, you know, his articulate way, command of the language. But in those, in those private moments and tutorial sessions and so on, um, Lewis could be really brutal to work with. And Tolkien was much more humane. Yes. uh,
1: (laughs) Kinder, probably more humble. Yeah. (laughs) I think so.
2: Well, I, having read Clyde S. Kilby's description of having conversations with Tolkien, I'm absolutely convinced he was ADD. He just bounced (laughs) all over the place. He never got his scholarly work done. Like decades later, people were still waiting for things from him because he was hyper-focused on writing another hundred thousand words of his legendarium. And building
1: it. Three or yeah. four new languages. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> there was a by, lot by, in that brain.
2: <laughs> by the way, yes, but um, yeah, for for Lewis, I think that's been my least favorite. Is that kind of writing? Uh, I admire what he's doing in Miracles and Problem of the Problem of Pain, but I do find sometimes he overstates his case or he or he's on a on a bit of a soapbox, and it's less than appealing to me.
1: Yeah, I hear you. Um, okay. Mm. So you mentioned a little bit about your next project that you're working on, on human flourishing. I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear a little bit more of that if you're willing to share some of your thoughts and process and materials.
2: Sure. Uh, when I became managing editor of Christian History in 2002, which I only I, I was doing that for two and a half years. Senior editor now means I get to have fun ideas and find scholar, other scholars and other people do the work. But when I was there, when it was owned by Christianity Today, back uh, at the in the early aughts, um, I was... Um, I was uh, aware that my very first issue was uh, we ended up titling it the um, the Christian face of the scientific revolution. And I was aware that the stories were told by folks like Carl Sagan about um, the uh, uh, eternal and constant enmity between uh, Christian faith and um, scientific uh, knowledge and scientific inquiry was um, slightly problematic to say the least mm-hmm. um and so I started as I entered the discussion about the faith and work movement more closer to uh, 2010. I started to think, well, what if what would happen if we went back to the Christian roots of not only science and technology but also higher education? I was aware that the university being created in a very Christian environment in the Middle Ages, uh, in the the roots of art, the arts of politics. I mean, just look at. I wanna travel around Europe for the rest of my life and look at Gothic cathedrals. I mean, (laughs) this is just incredible flourishing of the arts going on. Um, Law is steeped in, you know, the history of law in the West is deeply influenced by canon law, which comes from within the church um and you know on and on down and healthcare. i did a chapter in the medieval wisdom book about uh, the christian invention essentially of the hospital as a new kind of institution on the face of the earth and um as i'm involved in the faith and work conversation which is really what i do day to day now with the kern family foundation um i realized that there might be some usefulness in a historian grappling with the stories of how this happened how Uh, how these sectors were not necessarily invented by, but maybe refounded and deeply influenced by um, people of Christian conviction, not just how it happened. I have no interest in telling the story of Christians got here first. That makes, I I don't care if they did or not. Uh, I do want to ask what theological ideas and understandings were in play that influenced these sectors as they were in the cradle, so to speak. And so the book, Uh, fully human, uh, a brief history of faith and flourishing would be about chapter by chapter, these different sectors and the influence. But more than that, the theological ideas and understandings in play and how modern Christians who feel alienated from their own work sectors can draw from that Mm. in addressing those sectors. Because we often experience our work sectors and organizations as essentially secular, mm-hmm. but here's this long and rich story that says, no, it wasn't. And then there's an overarching story to be told there about the relationship between Christian faith and full human flourishing bodily, material, social, as well as spiritual. So I'm going to do all that in a really short little.
1: <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. I Thanks. I, me too. Yeah. I love that idea of just the, uh, the deep dive into the ideas forming these things that we just so take for granted in our daily lives right now. Um, And trying to die, you know, ask those big questions about them. I, I'm excited to see it out in the world sometime.
2: Well, sometime if I can find a publisher who's crazy enough to want to.
1: (laughs) Well, um, all right. So we're drawing to a close here, but uh, if people wanted to seek you out, get in touch with you, or follow you <laughs> online, wherever, where are they able to find you? Do you have social media? Yeah, um,
2: sure. I uh, I blog at gratefultothedead.com, and I get people constantly wandering on looking for Jerry Garcia fans. stuff. <laughs> <in the same laughs> No, that's not what it's about. I'm a historian. I'm literally grateful to the dead. Uh, that's also my email, gratefultothedad at gmail.com. So if you want to contact me, feel free that way. Um, and um, yeah, I'm on Facebook and stuff. Same same handle and Twitter. Um, but, you know, I'm a boomer. I don't really know how to use those things.
1: <laughs> oh social media. It is a gift in some ways and a bane in so many others. So
2: it is so true. It is so true.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation and, um, thanks for inviting me, Grace. Yeah, of course.
0: Thank you for listening to old books with grace. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it. If you subscribed rated or reviewed this podcast on the platform of your choice. It helps me out a lot and it helps others find the podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts or answer any questions you have. You can find me on Twitter at Grace hammond PhD or on Instagram at Old Books with Grace. And if you're curious about what I do and what I'm up to, sign up for my free monthly Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. Next episode is the final episode of this season. Dr. Frederick Bauerschmidt will be joining me to talk about Thomas Aquinas and tips for reading medieval theology and literature.